0: Life We're and here tonight of a stellar because neighbor, we are these lifelong the and learners who Fred love on learning and
1: education, form. just like Mr. Rogers instilled in so many of us, whether it was your own children, whether it was you yourself, whether it's your grandchildren, whatever it is, Mr. Rogers has uh, done something for us and has touched us. So I want to share a quote from Fred Rogers. We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, it's not my community, it's not my world, it's not my concern. Then there are those who see the need and respond. Let's be a community that responds. Let's be a library that responds. In an area where library is an essential role and in an area where the foundation invests heavily, early childhood development is incredibly important to us. For many children, the love of reading and learning begins with their first library experience. Think of that library card the first time you got one. Often it's the first official ID any child has. There are programs like Storytime, World Language Storytime, and our Raising a Reader program. These are all things that are helping kids develop the love of reading and learning and the habits that come with that. But as important as the reading is the teaching of the parents, to create the positive routines that help their children. So today we know so much more about early learning and Fred Rogers was a big part of that. His groundbreaking television show that began 50 years ago played a big key role. We are here with local leaders who have focused on early learning, the early child, and that's the Apex Foundation. When Craig Stewart of the Apex Foundation reached out to us to say, hey, there's this really great book that we're helping create and would you, could the library be host to its Northwest uh, kickoff? And so we were thrilled. But it's not just the kickoff, it's all the other things Apex is doing for us. In addition to programming tonight, you know, we're I Americans. To some we of you that on and November 5th me, we the will have a showing of Fred's movie, the and Neighbor*. And I can.
2: And, and it is very simple. Interesting
1: fun fact slow is slow down. Uh, Nicholas Ma, who's the son kind. of Luyo Ma, is the producer of that. Slow movie.
2: down and be kind.
1: We have really Biographer Maxwell King baby details baby. So the life and it. legacy You'll of good neighbor Mark, Fred producer, Rogers Ma, on speaker's form. You might recognize from the TV appearances cameo when he was a kid on the Mr. Rogers show. We also have the incredibly generous support from the Apex Foundation for over 200 story times so that will be coming up between now and February. And if you think of all the opportunities to incorporate some of the Mr. Rogers values and learning into those story times, I think we're gonna have some powerful moments ahead. So before I ask Craig to the podium to say a few last things, I have two more points. First, where is this exhibit? Fabulous, oh, and there's shoes. Okay, everyone, you will not be able to leave without checking out the shoes. I think they had a quick changeover of the tablecloth. So please come take a look afterward and see the the lovely uh, ephemera and lovely things. Thank you for bringing them, Dr. Winters. Um, And then if you, the other kind of housekeeping thing is if you need to leave early, we have an exit on this side and we have an exit back this way. And so with that, I think I've done all my housekeeping. I'm glad you're here, I hope you'll enjoy the program. We have some really interesting conversation to come and voices to be heard. And with that, I wanna introduce Craig Stewart, the CEO of the Apex Foundation, a community leader, leader of a foundation. And uh, we're thrilled to have you here.
3: Thank you, it's been a special privilege to spend last evening and, um, and most of today here. Um, I don't get to the library as much as I'd like to, but with two grandchildren now and uh, another one on the way, I, um, I anticipate that I'm going to be spending a lot more time in the library, but I- I'm really privileged to introduce uh, a, a simpatico, friend, um, and a colleague, and a, a great philanthropic leader, um, Max Maxwell King. His uh, 40 plus years uh, have been incredible, incredibly full. He was the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer for eight years. Uh, my hometown newspaper, uh, one which which I'd love to subscribe to again, if I could. Uh, Max also um, spent a number of years at the Heinz Foundation as the CEO, one of the largest foundations in the country. And uh, that was followed by a, a stint at the Fred Rogers, uh, center early learning center in uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania Where I actually had the chance I'm not sure max remembers this because I was sort of uh, in the background But I served on that advisory committee uh, for a couple of years and, and got to know uh, Got to know max at that time it it was a no-brainer for us to to uh, invest in this project max was Absolutely the right one to to write this, to write this story. Uh, and it's an amazing read. I've read it uh, for the second time last night. And I'm, I'm going to read it a third time because I'm sure I missed lots of de- details about uh, the incredible life of Fred Rogers. And you'll hear a little bit more tonight of how that influenced us. Influenced us. Max's wife, Peggy, is here. And, and Peggy, I'll bet you're more familiar with this book. Uh, and if Max uh, falters, come on up and take his place. <laughs> okay. But Max, thanks so much. We love having you here. And I look forward to hearing what you have to say tonight as well.
2: Thank you very much, Craig. Uh, Can you all hear me okay? Not too much reverberation. Uh, I think we've got an interesting program tonight. I'm going to talk for 15 or 20 minutes about two of the reasons that I think Fred Rogers is a really important figure in American culture and why I think he's particularly relevant uh, today. And then we're going to have a panel up here. I'm going to call Craig Stewart back up. And we're going to have Bruce McCaw McCall come back up. whos uh, They're both board members of APEX, which is, as Craig said, supported the project. And Professor June Leigh Lee from Harvard University, uh, who has a chair in child development there. And like me, is a former director of the Fred Rogers Center at St. Vincent College. Uh, so we'll have a, a good panel discussion. And then I think we'll also have time to take uh, questions from all of you out in the audience. But I did want to, just as I get started, acknowledge the uh, awful, awful event that took place Saturday in Pittsburgh uh, in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of the city at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Um, I think we're we're just stunned and stricken in Pittsburgh at the killings of 11 people there and and the shooting of police officers there. The positive thing I can say is that the community has immediately uh, pulled together. And I think uh, last night there was an interfaith service uh, with thousands of people in one of the halls in the university section of the city and thousands of people out on the street who were there. And Saturday night, just hours after the event, at the main intersection in Squirrel Hill, uh, a, a crowd of thousands of people came together for a candlelight vigil in support of uh, the whole community and particularly the Jewish community in uh, Squirrel Hill. That intersection, by the way, uh, has on one corner the church where Fred Rogers went to church for 40 years. He lived in Squirrel Hill, as do Peggy and I. And on the other corner is, is the neighborhood library. Uh, so there was some strong community symbolism there. So as I said, I'm gonna talk about a couple of aspects of Fred's life and work that I think make him uh, such an important American figure. But um, taking a page from Fred Rogers himself, I think I'll do it by telling you some stories rather than giving you a didactic uh, lecture. And I'll start in 1950 when Fred Rogers was coming out of college, he was graduating from Rollins College in Florida, where he had gone down to study music. He was very, very interested in, in music. Uh, he was an interesting young man. He had a, a very difficult, lonely childhood. Uh, he was sickly. Uh, he was introverted. Uh, he didn't have a lot of friends, but he came out of that in high school. And uh, he sort of uh, pulled himself self together in a remarkable way in high school, he became the um, uh, editor of the yearbook, president of the, of the uh, student body, national merit scholar. And, uh, and then he went on to college and studied music. And he was a young man who had a new idea every, every few weeks about what he was going to do. And he was a little frustrating, I think, for his parents sometimes. His father very much wanted him to go into the family business in La Trobe, Pennsylvania which was a very successful business, and the family was wealthy. His mother wanted him very much to become a Presbyterian minister. And so Fred Rogers came home for spring break uh, in 1950, and his parents, who I just said were, were uh, probably the most wealthy family in, in that small city in Western Pennsylvania, had the first television set uh, back in 1950 in La Trobe. And Fred Rogers watched television much of the weekend. And he was both horrified by it. Uh, there was a lot of slapstick uh, pie-in-your-face comedy, but it was also a lot of violence. Even the children's programs had a lot of violence in them. But in addition to being horrified by it, he was riveted by the educational potential of television. This is back in 1950. But he saw that it had this strong educational Potential. And at the end of the weekend, uh, he announced to his parents that he was going to New York to go into television. (laughs) And he had previously told his parents he was going to be a diplomat. He was going to be a French teacher. He was going to run an orphanage for children. He was going to be a minister. He sort of hinted that he might go into business with his father. So his parents were not surprised, but a little exasperated to hear him say that he had a whole new career idea. But they they were wonderfully caring and supportive parents, and his father helped him, had connections with RCA, which owned NBC in New York back then, helped him get an unpaid internship at at NBC, and he spent three years there, and he got a start in television. Then he came back to Pittsburgh and went to work for the um, first community-based educational television station in the United States, WQED. And in addition to being the program manager there, he started a children's program uh, with a woman named Josie Carey, who who was a secretary and assistant there. And the program was called the Children's Corner. And it was a wonderful, lighthearted, entertaining, fun program. Um, But it was very frustrating to Fred Rogers because it wasn't educational. And he had the thing that had captured him was what he thought was the potential of educational television to help children. And this program just wasn't doing it. And so he finally uh, closed down that program and uh, he, was, he was going to the seminary in Pittsburgh full-time and uh, he was trying to think about how he could get his ideas in, in, into uh, a form that would be uh, really powerful in terms of education of very young children. And uh, one of his teachers at the seminary said, well, Fred, when you graduate, uh, what church are you going to go have your ministry in? And Fred Rogers said, no, I want to have a ministry to children on television. And after the teacher explained to Fred that he was crazy, uh, he said, you know, if you're interested in children, though, uh, you should go over to the University of Pittsburgh and spend some time studying with a a professor there named Dr. Margaret McFarland. And so he did. He went over and he took some courses there. And it really was a miraculously fortunate occurrence that he made that connection. Because what was going on at the University of Pittsburgh back then uh, was uh, an extraordinary evolution in early childhood education, and thinking. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock was there. Uh, Dr. Eric Erickson, or no, he's not a doctor, but the philosopher Eric Erickson was there. Dr. Uh, 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 There were just a a whole number of other uh, nationally known scholars in early childhood at Pitt back then, in addition to Dr. Margaret McFarland. And Fred Rogers had the good fortune to be dropped into the middle Of this petri dish of creativity around early childhood education and what they were learning back there then was that the old Victorian notions of childhood uh, were completely backwards, were completely wrong. You, You may remember the old Victorian notions were that a child should be seen should be should be seen but not heard that the idea sort of was that childhood was this malaise and if you put children away for a while, they'd recover from it, and they'd become grown-ups. And what they were learning at Pitt back then was that um, it was the opposite of that, that the first few years of, of uh, childhood, uh, from, from birth to three, are the critical time when, when learning takes place, when language develops, when the brain develops, and that if those first few years are ignored, the potential of the child is greatly reduced later. And so these scholars at the University of Pittsburgh uh, were developing uh, really some of the most innovative and important thinking around early childhood education at at that time. And Fred had the great good luck to be dropped into the middle of that. He formed a working relationship with Dr. McFarland that lasted for the rest of her life. She consulted on all the programs that he did. And then Fred went on, and and for over 30 years, produced television that took all of this learning about the importance of early childhood, how children process information, the critical importance of social and emotional learning for young children. And he was able to create programming that brought it directly on television to children and to their parents. And so one of the reasons that I think Fred Rogers is this, powerfully important figure is that in the second half of the 20th century, he's really the person who taught America about the importance of early childhood education. We all understand that now. In, in almost every city in the country that you go to today, there are early childhood centers, and, and many, many, many of the students, or the young people, if not all of them, get a chance to go to early, get early childhood education before they go to school. But back when Fred was developing his uh, programming ideas in the 1950s, if you said to someone early childhood education, that's important, they thought you meant kindergarten. Nobody even understood that there was early childhood education before kindergarten. So it's now well understood, it's well practiced throughout the United States and, and throughout much of the, of the world. But Fred Rogers is the one who took this learning that that he had the good fortune to to, uh, come to understand at the University of Pittsburgh, brought it to a mass audience through television, and, and really accelerated and drove forward the early childhood education movement in the United States, which is, I would say, the single most important educational development of the second half of the 20th century. So that, I think, makes him a, a tremendously important cultural figure uh, for us to understand uh, today. But there's another reason, and it's actually the reason that was most appealing to me as I researched the biography and, and, and began to write it. I only met Fred twice. Uh, I didn't get to know him personally, but I got to know him well uh, through the research and I came to understand another aspect uh, of his person and his life and his work that I think in a way is perhaps even more important. And uh, I'll just tell you one story to illustrate that, uh, and then we can get to our panel discussion. But um, in, in the summer of 19, uh, well, 2003, in the summer of 2003, uh, Fred Rogers was feeling kind of sick Uh, But he didn't like going to the doctor, and he didn't go to the doctor very often. And he had a trip planned in September with some friends to Scotland. So he went ahead on that trip. And when he got back, he finally went to see the doctor, and they discovered that he had stomach cancer. And as many of you probably know, within six months, five months, six months, I guess, it it had killed him. But uh, they operated on, on him in January, and they discovered that it was inoperable. There was nothing they could do. They sewed him back home, and he went back to the apartment in Squirrel Hill that he lived in with his wife, Joanne. And Joanne and a very close friend of the family's sort of took care of Fred in the last few weeks of his life. And what they both reported to me when I interviewed them is that the number one, the, there were two things on his mind, the, mo- the most important thing on his mind was he didn't want to be a bother to anybody. And he kept saying to, to his wife and to his good friend, Dr. Bill Hirsch, who was there helping take care of him, that, that he, he wished that they could uh, just let him stay in his room and take care of himself because he hated being a bother to anybody else. But there was something else that was going on in those last few weeks of his life. Uh, And it didn't become apparent until after he died, about two weeks after he died, all the presents started arriving at the homes and offices of his friends and associates. And during the last few weeks of his life, he had been working with with a friend of his uh, who ran the McFeely, or still runs, the McFeely Rogers Foundation, collecting things, memorabilia from his life, and assigning and putting notes on them that he wanted this to go to that person and that to go to another person. And, and so after he died, all of these uh, things that meant something to him and to the person he was sending to them arrived. And almost without exception, there was no note. It's just the, the gift itself was, was the note, was the communication from Fred. Who had died a few weeks earlier? What that tells me, us, what that illustrates, I think, is a person who cared so much about human kindness and the universal human values that I think all everybody here probably values for him so much. And I think that's the other aspect that makes him so critically important today. He is. Uh, an extraordinarily powerful uh, exemplar of the best human values uh, that there are. He was a Presbyterian minister, but he was also, all through his life, um, a, re- a reader and a researcher about other philosophies and religions, uh, going all the way back to Confucius and Lao Tzu, Buddhism, Jainism, Judaism, the Muslim faith. And he saw that in all these faiths, there was a universal set of values, uh, respect, responsibility, uh, caring, fairness, integrity. And he cared about representing those and he did and he does still today. This is a man who woke up every morning at 5 a.m. to read the Bible and to pray. But he didn't pray for success for himself or his program. He didn't pray for anything special to happen. Here's what he prayed for every morning. He thought about who he was going to see that day at work, at lunch, in the afternoon, and he prayed that he could be as good and kind a person as he could with each one of these people. He envisioned the day and he envisioned being a kind person. So. That's what I value so much, in him and what I think is so critically important today. Pe- people often ask me um, if uh, I can strip his uh, philosophy down to, you know, we're Americans, we want a soundbite, and they ask me what's the soundbite for, for um, Fred's values, and I can, and I think it's this simple, uh, and it has to do with the way he lived his life and what he uh, taught on his show and what he preached when he wrote and spoke, and it is very simply, slow down, be kind. Slow down, be kind. And he felt that those things were related, that you can't really be kind and considerate and relate to other people if you don't slow down a little bit. I think they're great values. And what I want to do now is call up our panelists so we can talk uh, much more in much more depth about Fred's work and how it relates to the important developments in, in the field of child, uh, child development and early childhood education. So uh, I'm going to ask uh, Bruce McCaw, who is a founder of the Apex Foundation and the Talaris Institute, and uh, whose work in philanthropy, and civic leadership uh, is renowned, not just here in Seattle, but, but all around the country. I'm going to ask Bruce to come up and I'm going to ask Craig Stewart, uh, who is the uh, president of APEX as well as a board member. And as, as Craig mentioned a moment ago, also a member of the advisory uh, uh, board at, this, at the Fred Rogers Center at St. Vincent College. And uh, Professor Junlei Lee from Harvard University, uh, who uh, was at the the Rogers Center, uh, has now gone to Harvard, uh, and is one of the experts on Fred Rogers and early childhood. So if the three of you will come up and join me.
3: What time did Fred Rogers normally go to bed?
2: Bruce, I, I think I'd like to start with you, because uh, as I said, I appreciated so much your support, not just Apex's support for this biography project, but your personal interest and support in this, and, uh, and the, the uh, tremendous work that Apex has done on behalf of children. And I'd love to hear from you where that came from, uh, what, what, where your interest in Fred Rogers, your, your appreciation of Fred Rogers, Came from originally.
4: Well, Jolene and I were at a um, early learning conference at the White House. I think it was 2002, and Fred was there being honored by the president. And when he spoke, you know, we knew of him, and we'd been uh, we'd started Tolaris a couple years before that. But I don't know. Somehow, the way what he had to say that day really, I think, moved both of us. And and. And his ability to communicate, I think, to this day was just truly remarkable. He, he was a master communicator. And one of the things I think I appreciated so much about him, he was such a great listener. I mean, he listened to the kids, and he, and he responded to what they had to say. He responded to what they had on their mind. And so I, from that day forward, I think we were just very, very moved by... The power of who he was, and when the opportunity to do this project came up, I don't think we thought for five minutes that we thought it's an important story and one to be done. And I think most of all, we're thrilled the job, Max, that you've done with this because it's it's really a gift, I think, to the world.
2: Thank you. Uh, you know, one of the things that Fred cared a great deal about was parenting and parents. And he focused on that a lot he he uh, it was important to him as, as much as was possible that parents watch the program with their children and talk with them while they were watching it and I know that uh, Tolaris did such great work in, in the in the field of parenting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about that what, what you did to help uh, well, parents be better:
4: Well, when we started tolars, we actually were focused on. Re- uh, supporting research uh, about early learning. And then we realized uh, through meeting a couple people, one uh, that we were talking about last night, Jack Shonkoff, who's also at Harvard, that there was so much research that had been done about brain development, but it wasn't being converted into a practical form. And And we realized that what was lacking was not scientific knowledge, but it was trying to take this knowledge base and convert it into things that were useful to children or to parents, so that they had the the confidence of being what knowing what they were doing was being good parents and And I think a lot of parenting is actually quite instinctive, but I think people are so worried about how they're judged about their parenting styles and what they're doing, and there's there that it it influences people in a negative way. And I think we realized that taking practical information that had scientific support was so important. So the parents really had the confidence of knowing what to do to be good parents and following their instincts. And I think one of the things we, we talked about also was uh, Fred Rogers' belief that commercializing things, uh, for his programs was the wrong thing to do and i think when you look at all the commercialized products they're supposed to make kids you know bright and smart you know the baby einsteins and all this which is totally the wrong stuff he realized that commercialism would skew the message so badly that it wouldn't be the same message and and he stuck to that i think his whole life and 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 that's where he He kept things very simple and very basic. And he was just, like I say, a great great communicator. And he brought parents and kids together.
2: June Lay, I want to get you to talk a little bit about that, too, about uh, parents and parenting and how uh, Fred's thinking uh, about that, the importance of Fred's thinking about that. But it's interesting that. Harvard University, maybe a little late to the game, but is now uh, taking a real interest in early childhood and has established, I think, two chairs now, one for research, one for practice, which is the chair that you will hold. And I thought, um, since you'll be in that august position, you could talk to us a little bit about uh, what we can take from Fred Rogers in in terms of practice uh, as parents, as grandparents, as uncles and aunts, with children.
0: I think one of the, impo- uh, the most important message that Fred wanted parents to know, um, and he included in his books, and, um, and, and Joanne, his a, a, a wife, and Fred talked about this often, is that you don't have to be perfect the moment you become a parent. And so often, parents feel such a sense of, Responsibility that they needed to be perfect for their children. I think Fred was so committed to this idea not only of child development but of human development. And by that he means that all of us are learning and growing constantly. So, as much as our children, from the moment they're born or the moment they come into our own lives, that the children are learning and growing, that parents are learning and growing to be parents. And that Fred didn't think there were that the kind of principles that helps a child learn and grow are not fundamentally different from the kind of principles that helps a parent learn and grow. So, for example, one of the first things that Fred uh, focused on with young children is to help children understand that they have inherent worth and value. They're capable of loving, and that they're worthy of being loved. And when I think of so much of the research work in working particularly with at-risk parent, the kind of successful interventions are often grounded in that idea. Not to tell a parent how far they have fallen short, but that they are capable of loving and they're worthy of being loved. I mean, most recently, one of the most kind of interesting, exciting idea as many of you may be aware that our country is swept in the opioid crisis and one of the most tragic situations under that is that infants are born um, with opioid addiction. So the traditional practice is to of course blame that parent. How could you, right? How, how could you go to that kind of addiction while you're pregnant? But the practice instead of removing that parent from the infant, is actually to room that parent with the infant, even while the infant is in neo-intensive unit care. Now, that almost seems counterintuitive, but it's based on this principle that even an opioid-addicted mother is worthy of love and capable of loving. And when they do that, the hospitalization, the withdrawal symptoms in the infant, they significantly reduce. And it gave that infant and that mother a great start. And now if it is possible to communicate to a parent in that situation, that message, I can imagine that we can communicate that message to any parent under any circumstances.
2: One of the things, uh, powerful things, that I learned in doing research for this book uh, was the importance of the parent's voice that for very young children, even in utero, the mother's voice, the father's voice, that's the beginning of language for children. And we all know that it's important to read to children. But but what I learned in in reading about Fred's work and and the kind of research that was going on at the University of Pittsburgh back in the 50s is that parents should be helped to understand that. Just their voice, just talking to children, just having a, a free flowing exploratory conversation with children can be one of the most powerful tools for education there is uh, ever. Now, I know that, that Apex is focusing a lot more now on uh, mental health issues with children and that sort of a thing, and um, particularly uh, focusing on juveniles more, so, so moving up a little bit older. And Craig, I wondered if you might talk a little bit about Apex's current work, which which relates, I think, so clearly to Roger's focus on social and emotional learning. He was focused at the very early years, but it goes on to probably as old as you and I are, Craig.
3: For <laughs> sure, um, Fred had it right. Um, the earlier we can start, um, and Helping children adjust to their worlds, to understand uh, and express their emotions, and understand how to how to deal with their uh, with their emotions, um, I think would would go a long way in in uh, uh, really uh, ensuring that we're going to have a generation of of healthy kids socially and emotionally, and it it also. Um, to have a social socially and emotionally healthy kid predisposes or it, it suggests that uh, the parent and, and caregivers need to be uh, well socially and, and emotionally as well and that was an important aspect of of our work in early learning I'll, I'll never forget when we brought our first executive director on board john medina um, he made the comment uh, which raised a lot of eyebrows. He said, if you want your kid to get in Harvard, uh, love them unconditionally. And, and that resonated with us when we met with Fred and, and heard his message. And his, his message resonates with, with, from our perspective, with adolescents and with adults, slow down, listen. Be kind. Uh, I, I love the, the fact that um, we, we talked a little bit about Fred's uh, leadership style, and, which I think was extraordinary, and, and for many, maybe counterintuitive. Um, but what struck me in the book was the fact that he was beloved by people who worked for him. They developed a, a language called Freddyisms. Freddish, Fredish, Fred-ish. Um, which which was an endearing way of saying how lucky we are to work with a man like this. So, in in terms of the 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 issues we're working with with, with adolescents, it's a it's a big field. I mean, there are a lot of concerns about what's going on in you know, high schools and and uh, and across the country. With opiates and you know, maybe at some point you can talk a little bit about social social media and, and perhaps the impact that may have, and how we might address that. But um, Orly McKinstry, who is here in the audience somewhere tonight, is the real expert uh, in uh, on on what we're doing in that L.S. mental health world. So maybe at some point at another time, we can grab her, Bruce. Yeah, you know, one, uh, one
4: thing that I just was thinking back on when we started Tolaris, and I forget where this came from, but I, maybe from the governor, I'm not sure, but that 50% of the kids entering kindergarten were social and emotionally incapable of being successful in school. And so when you look at how our school systems continue to be a pretty tough battle, When the kids aren't ready to enter the environment of school and and function within it, it's almost impossible for them to be successful. And of course, then all the other challenges, the number of languages, the ability to communicate, and then all the social pressures. And of course, kids are just terrible to each other. And, and, And the social media, of course, just exacerbates all of that because it just It just gets worse and worse. So I I think it still comes back to these fundamentals that Fred was so focused on. You get it right at the beginning, and it gives the kid a good good chance. Uh,
2: When I was at the Fred Rogers Center, um, we went out, a couple of us went out and visited a lot of schools and a lot of kindergarten classes. And the kindergarten teachers who had been working for a number of years uniformly told us the same thing, which is after five or six weeks of kindergarten, they could predict which kids weren't gonna make it through high school. So they, were, they came into kindergarten behind, socially, emotionally, and in terms of language skills. And it's not impossible to catch up, but most of these kids in their experience didn't catch up, which is why the early childhood is crucial at that stage, but remains crucial as, as the child grows older. Bruce, you were, um, other than my editor and my wife, probably the first person to read the book, because I sent you uh, a galley copy to take a look at. And uh, I know you loved Fred, and you've told me you liked the book. I wondered if there was a particular story in there that, that really uh, grabbed you, that you thought was charming or interesting or important. Well, I, I think one of my favorites when, and
4: I think as we look at the political landscape today, uh, but it was, a, it was a pivotal moment for PBS when Fred was testifying before the Senate about funding for PBS. And, yeah, and I forget who the senator was, but one of the toughest guys. Yeah, a tough guy in DC, say the least. And Fred laid him away. He just laid them away with one of, and you can Google this talk, and it's worth listening to the whole thing. But he lays it out, and the guy said, you got the 20 million. And, you know, but it was, again, his, his ability to look at things and articulate them. It's remarkable.
2: That, that piece of video is still taught in business schools all around the country as an example of extraordinary marketing. And of course, the marketing secret was authenticity. He was completely authentic in that. You know, uh, a little while ago, I was talking about the reasons that I thought Fred would continue to be critically important and relevant today. But from an educational standpoint, Junlei, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about, because you're going to be focusing on this in your work, how does Fred's importance, In education which of course he spent his life in education going to be carried forward uh, in the future as you see it
0: so max you talked about earlier how when Fred um, went to um, the graduate studies in child development at University of Pittsburgh some of the best thinkers about children's development not just of that era but of the child development field were congregated there and I think what that enabled Fred was to be ahead of his time and ahead of research itself. So much of the research that we know today about social emotional development have come within the last two decades, but Fred started to communicate about the importance of that starting from the 1960s. So one of the things that we very much hope to do, and now with the collaboration between the Fred uh, Rogers Center and Harvard University, is to actually take these lessons into policy, into practice, into programs. And I'll just highlight very briefly what we think some of these lessons are. The most important of these lessons that came from Fred from the very beginning, but that we know today through brain science, through every branch of the human development science, we know for sure now, is that the single most important factor in human development in early childhood as well as beyond, is the quality of the human interactions around the child. That as fancy as the technology are today, Fred said way back in the 70s and 80s, and nothing, nothing can replace the person-to-person interaction. He would say something like, a computer can help you to spell the word hug, but it will never know the joy of giving or receiving one. And that is not to put down technology, that is just to echo not only Fred's message but all of what science have told us that the single most important factor. So part of the question for any educational system from early childhood to K through 12 to programs for youth who have had extreme difficulties early in life is what is it we can do to strengthen the quality of the human interactions around that child? from a preschool to a school to a group home for youth, everywhere where children are learning and growing, what can we do? Other lessons, for example, you talk so much about social emotional development. From the very beginning, Fred talked about, he used the phrase growing from the inside. So he thinks of things like learning your letters and numbers, those are the things that are on the outside. But what does it mean to grow on the inside as a person when you're young as well as when you're old? And the last one which I'm sure all of you are involved in and thinking about or concerned about is the role of technology in our own lives. And Fred would often say that there's nothing, there's no technology that's inherently good or evil. It is up to we, it it is when we as human beings give meaning to technology, that's when it develops a positive thrust. And we have seen all over our own lives that technology has been used for ill and have been used for good. And I think of what just happened in Pittsburgh, and we think of what the shooter was using his social media for. And you can kind of clearly see what that lesson there is. And Fred just believes so strongly that we human beings, it's not that technology give meaning to our own lives, it's that we can give meaning to the technology in our own lives.
2: Thank you very much. You know, I I want to uh, have enough time for questions from from the audience. And I wonder if uh, a couple people from the the library staff could grab a couple of these microphones, not mine, (laughs) and take them out into the crowd. Hold on to yours, Bruce, and we'll pass these around. So any any questions? You've got a great scholar and some great philanthropists here to talk to.
3: One of the highlights of the book for me was the range of interviews that you did for this. So we got to see so many of the facets of his life, not just his television work. I'm curious, however, who was the biggest fish that got away? Whether it was somebody who declined to be interviewed or you just weren't able to connect with, who would you have liked to talk to who you couldn't for the book? Uh,
2: thank you for that very good question. I, I need to point out, though, I did do about 55 interviews. But the, the key to the depth of the book is all the oral histories that the Fred Rogers Center commissioned just a few years after he died. And they did oral histories with every, people from, everybody from his family, everybody from his work, other people who who were active in television and education, I had access to all those oral histories and it made all the difference in the world. So I would say there are two big fish that got away that I didn't get a chance to talk to. Fred, of course, I met Fred only twice and I had a lovely conversation with him, but, but I didn't get a chance to question him about his own life. In fact, typical Fred, he questioned me mostly about my life during the exchange that we had, which was supposed to be about funding. It's when I ran the Heinz endowments, but he never said a word about money or his program. He just asked me about my children and parents. Uh, the other one, though, that got away was uh, Francois Clemens, who Officer Clemens, who was on the show for years, a very elegant opera singer. He's up now at Middlebury College, where Craig went to school in Vermont. and. Uh, Peggy and I were in Vermont for a couple of years uh, after my last retirement. I'm a a serial retiree, (laughs) and I tried so hard to get him to talk to me. I did have things in the book from him because he did an NPR interview that I could could access, but I really wanted to talk to him, and he was just just leery of, of doing that.
5: Okay. Uh, so a uh, question that I had um, with Fred Rogers, you usually see most people, you know, look at what he did and saw it as, you know, we have so much to take from him. Um, one thing that I've been curious to sort of see if anybody has thoughts on is if the, you looked at Fred's body of work and you saw any maybe like unanswered questions, like where was, what was he still struggling with? What was his Einstein's last equation, you
2: Lai, do you want to try that here?
0: I think it was actually um, part in the biography towards the end. And I know it's a very challenging kind of a question. But towards the end of Fred's life, um, after he retired from television, he at times doubted um, what impact he had made in the world. Now it's odd, right, for anyone who have grown up with the neighborhood as a child and as a parent that Fred would doubt that. But Fred did doubt that. And I think the much bigger question, I think, that was in Fred's mind also, was that how do we make a lasting impact in the world? Right. In the end, I think Fred reconciled to himself this idea that whatever he did was honest and he did the best he could in the domain in which he could impact. And the much bigger question that the biography as well as the documentary leaves with us is, what are we gonna do now, <laughs> right? That, that Fred would never expect any of us to become like Fred. He just wanted any of us to become honest to ourselves. And then it becomes this important question for each of us, right, that, that what does it mean to make an impact in our own lives, even when we're not quite sure that we did. So as accomplished as he was, he wasn't quite sure that he did, but he was in the end content that he was honest and that he did the best he could within his domain. And so what would that mean, right, for every person who is interested in Fred's legacy, not just in nostalgia, but in going forward thinking, What what would we do when we don't have the evidence that we were hoping for of our impact?
1: Thank you. Um, I confess I haven't finished the book yet, so the answer may be in the book. But I am wondering, after watching both the documentary and the feature documentary, Are either of Joanne and Fred Rogers' sons or other family members or close people to that family participating in carrying on his works in early childhood education? Thank you.
2: There are no family members who are carrying on the work other than his widow, Joanne, who's on the board of Fred Rogers Productions. Uh, Fred's two sons, one lives in Florida, one lives in Pittsburgh, uh, didn't go into the same uh, line of work at all. Uh, Fred Rogers Productions, though, is carrying on the work very successfully, uh, producing a lot of the very best children's media that's being done today. Uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Peg Plus Cat, are very, very good programs that try to use the methodologies and the values that Fred Rogers himself espoused. Um, and there are friends and associates of Fred's, both at Fred Rogers Productions and at the Fred Rogers Center at St. Vincent, that are carrying on the work. And you know, institutions like APEX, I think, are carrying on uh, the work.
4: Oh my! My question is: Is should the show have just been continued, uh, but have somebody in his place? But it sounds like there's already productions or, or something that are similar to his show.
2: I had a hard time yeah. catching it because. Uh,
4: so, why didn't we just have a uh, have the show continue with somebody in Fred Rogers' place? Like, should that have. I, th- I think, well, I, was the question about the show continuing with someone else? Yeah, why, why did they just do that? Yeah, I, do you to speak that?
0: <laughs> so at the time, there was a serious uh, consideration uh, 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 between 2003, when Fred died, to 2013, when the, uh, his nonprofit started to produce Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. That was a 10-year span where we weren't sure um, how to continue it, but I think in the end, it was this idea that Fred was this authentic person that was on the program, and we couldn't quite pretend, right, that that's easily substituted, and that uh, Fred had thought so carefully about the program that he thought that the program itself can continue to be available for families and for children. And in fact, they are. So um, uh, PBS has a number of these episodes online for free, and then Amazon Prime hosts hundreds of episodes. Um, But that in the end, it was just this idea that you couldn't replace that person and that in order to be authentic to the show, we couldn't continue the format the way it is and that the production company has to find a new way to serve children and families, which by now they have found, I think the Fred Rogers Productions have um, some of the top rated programs on PBS Kids. Um, So in a way they have, (coughs) they're able to serve in children um, at least as, as well or as much as what Fred did when uh, the program was on the air.
2: I must say, my, as June Lee said, the programs are available on PBS and Amazon, but my disappointment is, and I know that the programs are dated, that the, the, the content uh, reflects the time at which they were produced, but my big disappointment is with hundreds of cable channels out there, many of which are filled with crap, couldn't one of them show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood?
6: Hi, um, so I grew up near Pittsburgh on the Latrobe side of Pittsburgh, but it's a very, I, I said I grew up near there. So not only on television, but in person. And I worked at Idlewild where there is the Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and all that. So. Um, very near and dear to my heart, but as a parent, one of the things I'm wondering, so one of the most important things about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the show, for me growing up, was that it was more frequent. It was every day. It was broken down into small pieces. It was digestible, and it had a beginning, a middle, an end. It, it gave kids an opportunity to have that arc, and I feel like there's nothing, I love Pick Plus Cat, I like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, um, but I feel like there's nothing like that that gives the consistency and the, I don't know, that grounding of day to day and dealing with the, the moment, the thing that makes it dated was what made it amazing. So with all the technology, I'm wondering if there's anything if the production company is sort of thinking about something like that, that aspect of his gift rather than just the education part, but the dealing part
2: that was one of the things that was critically important to Fred Rogers, that he learned from Dr. Margaret McFarland and others, is how important consistency is for little children, not only in how they learn, but in how they respond to what they're exposed to. So if you want little children to sort of quiet down and pay attention and and learn, having a consistent format in which they know what to expect and their expectations are met is tremendously important. And um, he was—I thought Rogers was extraordinarily skillful at producing whole-week series on one theme and carrying it through the neighborhood of make-believe and and then the the neighborhood itself. Those two segments of the program for for five days and and delivering. Uh, wonderful wealth of information to children, but in a very consistent and predictable way for them. And it, I don't, well you speak to Junlei about whether there's other children's programming that that delivers in that same way.
0: I think you pointed out something really important and that is that very few programs do that. And I think Fred did that because he had such a tremendous respect for children. So one of the complaints that people would have about Fred's program is it's too slow, right? And then people say that slow is boring. But what in reality happens is that as far as working with children through media, fast is easy, slow is hard, right? So even for a very young infant, if you keep flashing things in front of them, the infant couldn't help but to look at it. That's the easy part. But to get a young infant to focus on something and look at it for an extended period of time until he or she discovers something, that's hard. And so Fred was willing to do what was the hardest thing to do, which is to slow it down for children. And I think for better, I think it's for worse, that instead of taking on the challenge of going slow, we take on the easy way out and excuse it is, well, today's children want fast things. That is simply not true. That the way our attention system are built requires us to slow down in order to learn. That is true for a young child, that is even true for a grown-up. And so the idea that we market what is the easiest to market rather than pursuing what, as you suggest, is some, something that's incredibly hard to do but so worthwhile.
2: We have a question here. I think we have time for two more questions and then we'll wrap up. I think the comment about the speed is uh, very important. And one of the things, uh, I'm from Pittsburgh also and I've
3: watched Mr. Rogers um, almost religiously. Mm-hmm. so. But I think one of the greatest things is that he gave small challenges to the kids, and they would succeed, and he would tell them, I knew you could. And is there other shows and other
2: formats that give them the small challenges and give the encouragement and the belief like that?
0: I think there are a lot of shows that tries to get across a very positive message to children um, by offering these affirmative messages about how you did it and so on. I think one of the things that I find was striking and unique in Fred's approach is that he doesn't expect the child to get it right here, right now. Like, in these programs, he would ask the child a question, for example, what do you do when you feel blue? Like, I could ask a grown-up a question, what do you do when you feel blue? It's going to take a while for you to think about that. And Fred was willing to let you think about that and come back. And I think part of the challenge of the shorter attention span shows is that they expect, for example, within the 13, 14-minute segment, whatever the challenge is gets resolved and that you kind of figured it out right then and there, but that's not what everyday life is like. Uh, What Fred did, for example, over the span of uh, Monday through Friday theme week is a child or puppet would try to resolve something difficult that they're struggling with. For for example, one time, Prince Tuesday was really worried that his parents were getting a divorce. So he'll struggle with it on Monday, and he'll be reassured, but on Tuesday, the struggle will come up again. And on Wednesday, he's still working on it. But that's what everyday life is more like for children. And I think we don't have enough programs that mirrors the realistic challenges that children and families go through, that it's a little too packaged, too pristine. So while the positive affirmation aspect is preserved and extended, I think presenting and capturing realistic challenges that children and parents struggle with, that I think we're falling short on in the media and the programs we have now.
2: So I think we can take one last question.
5: I want to thank you for being here. I've been in early learning, the field of early learning all my adult well, actually, I started when I was a teenager, working at a preschool. And I'm now in administration. And I'm concerned about the um, the areas that seem kind of bumping up against each other. Um, I'm reading a book by some local authors called From, Thinking, From Teaching to Thinking by Ann Palo and another local author and you know we're really exploring how fantastic it is for wonder and inquiry and imagination and all of this wonderful juicy stuff you know coming out of children to encourage that and use that as a springboard to their further learning and on the other side of things we have the QRIS, the Quality Rating Improvement System, and, these, you know, and this thing that's, that's you know, gangbusters all over the country. You know, we're going to start preschool, and we're going to get these kids ready for kindergarten, and it's about this, and this, and this, which seems to really bump uncomfortably in a lot of ways with the beauty and wonder of a child's learning. So I'm just wondering if you can comment on this from your various perspectives on what the resolution is between these. And thank you again.
2: (laughs) Would you like to take a stab at it? Um,
3: um, Early on, um, in the first couple of years, uh, we did, we, we actually went around the United States talking to various researchers and I remember a conversation with uh, Maggie Mahoney who was responsible for early le- for the early learning program at the Carnegie Foundation and she said there is nothing more important than the parent and And we tend to focus, rightly so in many respects, on those who don't have access to to the same things that perhaps more uh, affluent uh, parents might have access to. But her point was every parent can benefit from support uh, in some way, knowing that they are not in this alone, that there are others who have had who have led the way or who are going through the same thing that you might be going through, um, but she was a strong advocate, particularly in the public policy arena, about ensuring that all programs from the, uh, from the public sector supported um, all, all parents. And to me, the message from Fred was, and, and that you articulated so well, is the, is the human connection connected to parents, to siblings, to grandparents, to friends, to coworkers, and to, and to the neighbors. Um, and if we can figure out how to do that, how to replicate that, um, we will have come a long way.
4: Yeah, I think just to add to that, I think you know so much of the public policy work Today, I mean, we get so focused on programs to take care of early learning with kids. And too many of them really involve separating the kids and their parents. And and so I think we need more programs that really reinforce supporting parents to be successful with their kids rather than making sure they go off and work somewhere, you know, and things like that. And then the kid gets tossed into a program where they just don't have the human interaction and they the proximity of kids to an adult that cares about them deeply I think that becomes the most powerful tool and when we when we displace that, you know it doesn't it's not always going to be a parent but it may be a family member or something but kids have to have an adult in their life that they trust or adults in their life that they trust and I think too often we think some program is going to fix this, and it simply doesn't.
2: You know, when I, when I heard you uh, put the question just the way you did, what I was reminded of is um, Fred Rogers' focus on the importance of serendipity in learning, the accidental, the unexpected, the unprogrammed, and that's why he was such an advocate of, of free-form play without any structure, without any learning, just the, the learning that takes place through play and serendipity, so, such a important part. Well, I, I thank all of you so much for being here. Please join me in thanking our panel for this program.